0: Hello, and welcome to Capital Compass. We are the official podcast of the New York State Catholic Conference. I'm your host, Jillian. Today, in episode 33, I'll be talking with Sister Mary DePaul from the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne about respecting life and end-of-life care. Each year in October, the Catholic Church in the United States celebrates Respect Life Month, As Catholics, we are called to cherish, defend, and protect those who are most vulnerable, from the beginning to the end of their lives, and at every point in between. Joining us on the podcast today is Sister Mary DePaul from the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne to discuss their ministry's work nursing those with incurable cancer at the end of their lives. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell our listeners a little background about your order? Well, we were founded at the turn of the last century, our foundress
1: was Rose Hawthorne. She was the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne, a convert to Catholicism. She lived, you would say, probably a privileged life at the time, you know, uh, was well educated, moved in circles that had social impact. And she and her husband lost a child, and they had some difficulties through their marriage. But they found great solace in the doctrines of the church and understanding the communion of saints and being a part of something much greater than themselves. And they converted through the Paul's Fathers, actually, and became Catholics in 1891. Rose and George still had some difficulties. They they gave a lot of energy to the church uh, trying to do charitable works and education programs and all, but they did wind up separating. And Rose always said that she wanted to do something very useful to give back to God all that he had given to her. So she found out that the cancerous poor in New York City really suffered their disease without any care at all. Uh, Many ended up in almshouses of the day, which were sort of the refuge of of where people that had no place else to go ended up and had very poor medical care and attention, sometimes even patients taking care of patients in order to to survive and hoping that somebody would be standing upright when their turn came when they were bedbound. So she thought this was a terrible thing. And although she knew she couldn't do a whole lot, she went down to the Lower East Side and she rented uh, rooms in a tenement and began taking in patients that were really evicted from their apartments and things like that and couldn't survive on their own. And that was how the the work of the community began. And then through a Dominican father, Father Tente, who came down to to see her work, actually to visit a parishioner from uh, St. Vincent Ferrer Parish, he when he realized what they were doing, he said this work needs more religious grace and help and support, and uh, he encouraged them to become Dominican tertiaries and continue, continue the work. And that's how it all—that was the seed of the start.
0: <laughs> Can you tell our listeners a bit about what you do? Well, we have a facility here in New York, which is
1: our mother house, and was opened in 1901. And it stemmed from our first building, which was down on the Lower East Side. And what we do is we take in individuals that have exhausted their means to sustain their care at their end of life. And they all have cancer diagnosis. That was what we were founded for. There's still a good need of people in that realm. So sometimes we get people that don't have status here as as citizens. Sometimes we get people just from um, impoverished communities. Sometimes we even get people from middle-class set of life that, you know, didn't have proper savings for long-term care and things like that and uh, really need the assistance end of their life sometimes have a spouse that they're worried about what's going to happen to them if everything's drained and so we take people that are in financial need and both have um, need good palliative care sometimes they're here longer than people would expect but (laughs) but they just need good palliative end-of-life care
0: with october being respect life month and in this case meaning respect and dying you know there are people that say western medicine doesn't necessarily provide compassionate death you know there are a lot of artificial means of keeping people alive how does this compare to kind of like what you guys offer you know um one of the th- big things that we do or that we've done on the podcast is really stress the importance of like palliative care
1: yes it's true um we have to deal with our our um, fact that we're not going to be here forever and I think sometimes in our culture unfortunately um, people just get wrapped in a cycle of what to do next, and maybe they don't think of the, um, what happens at the end of life sometimes. And, and I think that they might see it and touch on it, but they don't always understand that, that we, there's more than the here and now, I think, and you have to, it, focusing on that is, is hard for many people, I think. So when, the, when they go into to healthcare, and especially as they get older and they get a diagnosis of something that's going to end up being chronic, so to speak, Um, It's managed in the beginning, and they seem to be able to get by with some little losses. But as the losses get greater, they have to deal with the fact that they're not going to be able to keep going on. And I think sometimes the healthcare industry hasn't been able to help them with that, to help them see in a compassionate way, rather than um, you can see from both ends. You can see it like, well, we're not going to get better from this, and we're not going to do much, uh, you know, which isn't a way to approach it either. But the other approach that, oh, we'll do this for you, and let's keep you in the system isn't always helpful either. It's, it's being able to see the, see the trajectory of the disease and uh, understand what the consequences are of each treatment option that you take. And sometimes I think people don't get the right guidance in that or don't have the right clinicians that can do that. So that's a very important factor. I think in our, in our Western medicine
0: that we have to address. Now, one of my uh, big questions on researching you guys was, uh, how have patients found you guys? I, I'm, I'm an upstater, so uh, you know I'm not as familiar with things uh, as downstate, but I'm, I'm just very curious uh, and kind of hope our listeners can hear.
1: We've been here since 1901, um, so we have a reputation in the community, although not everybody knows about us. Uh, we really depend on the social workers in the hospitals to, to direct the right patients to us. Unfortunately, sometimes we have we're very we're small, so we can only take so many. So sometimes we have the, the thing where they apply and then we just don't have a bed ready for somebody um, because it is, does depend on that turnover. But that's the majority. Sometimes it's because the family knows about us because they had a grandparent or a great grandparent that died here and and they might um, look us up that way. But the majority of them come through the social workers in the various hospitals or people who even sometimes uh a priest might call us from a parish and say, we have this parishioner. We had a, a very interesting case that happened about a year ago that uh, this one parish that the, a lot of volunteers in the parish were going in and taking care of this elderly woman who was alone as long as they could. And they did a wonderful job. And then when the point got where it really just became too difficult for them to manage her um medical symptoms, they called us and we were able to help. So those are the kinds of things that uh, the kind of uh, sources that we have. So we appreciate, we do depend on the community to direct us to the people that most need us.
0: I noticed one of the qualifications to be cared at your facilities is uh, financial need. You know, you don't accept private or government insurance. You know, yes. Catholic social teaching reminds us to care for the poor and the sick. How do you see this tying into Respect Life? We're called as a
1: community, in one of the wealthiest nations in the world, to to really look after the poor and the vulnerable. They're on our streets, and they're also across the ocean and other continents. In a small way, we do it here in this this community. Sometimes we get people from Connecticut and New Jersey also, so we do a little bit interstate. But we hope that we help, uh, even though it's a handful probably in the number that probably are out there that could use this kind of service. We hope that we help a significant group that, through the ones that we help, we inspire others also Um, maybe to do more or even to to be directed to even to the church and the message of salvation that um, and it depended on the support of the church and look at the church in a way that that does look out for the the most needy and the poorest in the community
0: you know when uh we think of respect life most people think of the beginning of life why is it so important for us to focus on the end of life too
1: well, they're they're hand and glove. They're two two of uh, the most vulnerable groups in society. I mean, the the elderly and the ill don't always have people to stand up and voice for them. As the child in the womb, they're there. They're maybe more visible to us in many ways, which makes it, which makes it more blatantly our responsibility to take care of them in in some regards because we can see it and we know that that as a person we're approaching that in our lives too. So um. I think that uh, if we can't respect what we see suffering, how can we even understand what we don't see?
0: You know, and I'm sure you've heard there's a growing push for physician-assisted suicide. I know this is a, a little more uh, complex topic. Oh, yeah. But I kind of, again, want to hit home with our listeners. Why should we be supporting palliative care and other means of medical care instead of such uh, drastic choices?
1: Oh, I think... People sometimes might even confuse, uh, well, I guess you, you confuse the idea that, you know, palliative care, we have a lot of options to help people be comfortable. Um, we have medications. We have, we've developed a lot of several modalities to help pain, whether they be on a, you know, a, that's from the central nervous system or, or in just local systems. And, and we employ a lot of them here. You know, our goal is to help people to be as comfortable and as active as possible and as mindful as possible with the days they have left. And I think people don't always realize that, you know, as you approach each loss, and you find a way to cope and support, you can't judge what's going to happen way forward, two years down the line, or a year down the line, when, you know, when you have to meet each each challenge as it's approaching, you have a community of people to, to help you and support you. That's the beauty of being able to move forward and accept your suffering, but also expect the support and the relief of suffering that is at your disposal. It's so interesting because you know we have many patients, sometimes even our own sisters, who, you know, become ill and they have to accept the the change. And you think to yourself, well, can I accept that I'm not going to, to be able to walk from my bed to the bathroom and and then you have people taking care of you and you find other outlets of enjoyment that you Go to an activity and you participate in a baking or or but we have our activities persons they do crafts and you have these people that can't even dress themselves or take care of themselves but they can help mix the cookie batter you know and they find enjoyment in the day doing little things even the community you know there's uh i've been there's one lady here that said to me one day i said do you miss being home because she made a reference to home and she said well i do but she said but i i have people here and i I don't want to be left at home alone, so I enjoy the things that are offered to me here. So from our home perspective, when people told her, oh, you're going to go into a facility that's going to take care of you, she resisted. But then when she got here, she was able to to overcome that obstacle and then find enjoyment in what was offered. And then the next obstacle come and hopefully the support of the, uh, the nursing community, the sisters, and it's staff that we have all support her into the next phase. So I think people... They jump the gun and think of themselves as walking and doing the things that uh, they do independently, and then they're thinking of being dependent and not realize that there's still opportunities to be a person and be and have value in each day, and hour in that next realm. <laughs> so unfortunately, you know, I think too the other thing is we had we were like when I was growing up, we had a, a large extended family, and uh, my grandfather lived with us. And I always remember my mother's aunts, they were all of that generation, my grandfathers, and as each one got elderly, they went to my Aunt May's house, it was in a section of Philadelphia, and each one, they each died in the house, you know, and then they were, their um, funerals started out with a viewing being laid out in the living room, and we had like, the family was there, it was, death was a natural part of life, and the process to get there was also, most of those aunts were and uncles were in their 80s and 90s when they died, which was good longevity, which isn't always the case. But, um, but they, they had this acceptance of life in the family as being that, the next thing to accept and, and have the support of the family. And I don't know that we have that in our extended families anymore, which is sort of sad. Um, people work and work you know, and don't seem to have that time for their generation before them.
0: Now, I do have a, uh, a more personal question, because I love hearing about different vocation stories. And there are so many different choices in religious orders. And, you know, it's, it's always good to promote vocations, too, obviously. So why did you choose the uh, Hawthorne Dominicans out of um, all the other religious orders you might have been? Well, I
1: was attracted to religious life when I was in high school. And... Um... I knew about this community. Actually, I was going thinking I belonged in a cloister, <laughs> believe it or not. But anyway, I was visiting the poor Clares in Langford, Pennsylvania. But there was a, a sister from our parish who happened to be in, in this community, still is. And um, the, the idea of taking care of the, the sick was very appealing to me. I think my dad's side of the family, we lost almost a whole generation to cancer. So Growing up, I there was multiple funerals and multiple times people were off in the hospital. It was some sort of the, wasn't the earliest time, of course, of chemo and radiation, but it was a time when we were still making a lot of mistakes in that treatment category uh, with people. So, you know, I saw uh, one particular aunt on my dad's side that had suffered greatly in the process, and um, I remember her saying, when I was like fourteen, I had gone to visit her with my dad, and she she asked my, my dad to send me outside, and I was outside the room, and she said, you know, this suffering from cancer isn't, I don't want, she didn't want me to see that, you know, so she felt that, um, she felt that something different should have been of of her life at that end stage, and she did really suffer and um, not have the support of the medicine that was developed for palliative care at that time, so, and I found out about these sisters and actually went to visit when I was a sophomore in high school, and um, it was uh, at our home in New York City. We were having the firemen's party. Every year, the firemen of New York City, they had the Anchor Club. They would come and put a big party on for the patients. And so we're going around to these patients. And I'm, I'm now about 17 years old. And I'm walking around and I'm seeing these people smiling and singing and happy as they're uh, dying of cancer, so to speak. And um, some not looking very healthy, of course, but happy, you know. And so this this contrast with what I saw with my aunt and then uh, seeing that was like, wow, there is a way to make... People uh, feel better at the end of life, particularly from cancer. So, I think that was uh, that was the life experience that drew me to the
0: community. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I know you guys do a lot. How can our listeners uh, learn more about your order or uh, support your work?
1: Well, we we really we always ask people to pray for vocations. We get the opportunity to be as visible in young circles as other communities do. Um, so we always ask for prayers for vocations and any way they can promote Rose Hawthorne's cause. She's a servant of God, and we hope she'll be venerable soon. (laughs) So um, we do have that if they want to write and become a guild member for promoting Rose Hawthorne's cause in their parishes. If they know young people, young women who um, have a a vocation and possibly would like to take care of the sick, maybe they could come visit us. That would be wonderful. So
0: (laughs) that would be a big, big help. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Capital Compass Podcast, and thank you so much to Sister Mary DePaul for coming on the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to catch the latest from the conference, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NYSCatholicConf and on Facebook at NYSCatholicConference. Thanks again, and God bless.